0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Down Fifth Avenue, really down towards New York University and the offices. Uh, John, of Eurasia Group, and of course that always means our annual first of the year visit with Ian Bremmer and their top risks for 2019. We've had a spirited discussion through the morning. John, why don't you kick it off with Dr. Bremmer.
1: Ian, let's begin, shall we, with the uh, top risks that you guys are looking at. You put out this list every single year, and we have the privilege of opening some of our coverage up with you when you do do that. And I think it's interesting that you mention what could transpire over the coming years because of what is happening now, the bad seeds that we're planting. Just walk us through that thinking, Ian.
2: Sure. I mean, you know, there are so, if you look at uh, the major things that are happening in the world today, the geopolitical trends, both domestically within countries and internationally, all of them are trending in a negative direction. It's the first time since we started the company 21 years ago when we could say that. None of them are urgent. Whether we look at the erosion of US political institutions, whether we look at challenges inside Europe as a whole and inside those individual countries, whether we look at the system of global alliances, US-Russia, US-China, transatlantic, and within the Middle East, or the rise of populism and nationalism. None of these things are urgent. All of them trend in a negative direction. All of them mean that we won't respond effectively to the next crisis when it comes.
0: Your team is so good at the calculus, the first and second derivative rates of change of international relations. I love your word, I gotta pronounce it right here. Escalatory. We are escalatory right now. What is our movement towards escalatory
2: crisis? Well, I guess I would say with the global economy doing well, it doesn't feel like 2019 is your challenge. But if you think about when the big recession hit in 2008, Everyone responded constructively so that we avoided depression. The United States, there was the Europeans, the Chinese. Strength. There was a lot of strength. 9 11, the response came from the United States. Right. The whole country came together behind Bush. Can we do that now? The coalition of the Can willing, we the Russians. No, no, whatever the next shock is, whether it's cyber or terror or more likely the next economic downturn, right. the reaction inside our country and internationally is going to be toxic. And I think that that's what's underappreciated this
0: year. Measure for us the confidence of the system right now in the markets and all of Global Wall Street that listens to us every day. They're hardwired to the confidence for investment, the confidence to find the bid in various markets as well. What is our IR confidence right now?
2: Yeah, I mean, the confidence in the economy is I would say reasonably strong, Mm. the IR, the international relations confidence is low and trending worse on a daily basis. Now a lot of that, a lot of the reason that IR confidence isn't high in the markets is because of Trump, but it shouldn't be that. It should be much more structural. It should be that the forces that got Trump elected in the United States. It should be the forces that led to Brexit in the UK. It should be the forces right. that have led to the Italian <clears throat> government as well as yeah. the rise of China.
0: Is he a one-off? I mean, that's the, the question. I see you out doing all the media for Eurasia Group and all that, and they never ask you the, just the pregnant question. Is President Trump a one-off phenomenon? I think of William you James know, Bryant.
2: When I see Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on 60 Minutes yesterday saying, uh, I may get the facts wrong, but you need to focus on the underlying morality of what of I'm saying, right? That's exactly what Trump was saying. Take him seriously, but not literally. That's exactly why the Brexit forces Okay, well, let me won. flip it. Is
0: the, is the liberal progressive new confidence that we see in the house will that be a one-off or is there a real sustained move back to a more liberal
2: theology in america what i'm saying is i think the center not holding is not a one-off and while trump himself in terms of his volatility his character or lack thereof that that is indeed an extreme outcome in the u.s the likelihood that the next president or series of leaders would come from the farther right and farther left, I think is growing.
0: Do you have an optimism that we can do and practice democracy given this polarity? I mean, George Herbert Walker Bush was one of our great losses for 2018. That middle ground seems to be gone.
2: I have an optimism that American political institutions are surprisingly strong and resilient and they can withstand whatever Trump and his administration has to offer against it. But that's different from saying that democracy fundamentally is working for a majority of Americans. I think that when Trump says the system is rigged against you and people respond to that, it's because he's right. Now, Trump hasn't made the system less rigged against them, but he did identify the problem. And a lot of people out there are telling their constituents liberal democracy has been gamed to create much greater inequality and to give access to power and speak power to truth. And that's not a useful thing for most voters. When
0: I look at bad seeds, US, China, cyber gloves off, Euro populism, Mexico, Ukraine, and the rest, I wanna go back to the arching theme of surveillance for last year, and I don't think I nailed this 12 months ago, which is technology. What all of our listeners, Global Wall Street, people just wired into Wall Street, in the great professional group of all ages that listen to us, they're all affected by technology, and you're calling for an innovation winter. What is that?
2: Innovation winter means that a combination of a fragmentation of the most important technology trends, so 5G, which is going to be the backbone, not just of <clears throat> smartphones, but the internet of things, smart cities, is not going to be one system like 4G was. It's going to be a China-led system and a Western-led system, and they won't interact. Yeah. That's one part. And the second part is the growing tech lash, the political trends against the big tech firms in the does west because no, i've this been dying to
0: it. ask you this question ian does technology enhance or accentuate the gilded age so many of our listeners feel we're, we're, we're living in
2: it makes uh, those that don't participate in the gilded age more aware of the fact that they're left behind it makes it easier for them to connect with others that feel the same way um, it also speeds up yeah. Um, the ability of those in the Gilded <coughs> Age um, to build walls that effectively differentiate these people.
0: What, what will the Democratic Party do? You're a great student of domestic politics. What will the new Democratic Party look like?
2: Um, because there are all um, focused on 2020 after these midterm elections. you sure they're not focused on April of this year? And Trump. (laughs) Well, I mean, they're they're, they're going to be focused on impeachment proceedings as well, and I have a hard time seeing uh, Pelosi uh, keeping that off of the agenda. But I do think that it helps to coalesce the Democrats when they are all kind of on message against the American president. But let's be clear, 17 Republican candidates, most of them were pretty establishment and in the middle. You're gonna have yeah, twenty like to thirty twenty well to 20 to 30 Democratic candidates, <coughs> and they're going to be some in the middle, some on the left, and some complete outsiders. And that does make the twenty twenty race from the democratic perspective much more of a crapshoot to well, what you get.
0: Ian Brummer, thank you so much. Top risk of 2019 at Eurasia Group as we visit uh, his offices here on Fifth Era Avenue.
1: I want to bring in Priya Misra now, TD Securities Head of Global Rate Strategy, to talk about the bond market. Priya, a big change in tone from the chairman. Just to go through some of his recent comments, listening carefully to market risks, prepared to be patient, flexible, even open to balance sheet policy change. Priya, the chairman seems to be all over the place the last couple of months.
3: Hi, John. Um Yes. So I think uh, the market uh, interpretation of of the chairman's comments has changed. Now, I do think in, in the December press conference, he was trying to signal this flexibility. But we were, we sort of went into that meeting uh, expecting a lot. Uh, there were certainly people expecting uh, no hike there. Uh, and the chairman did hike. I think it's very hard to hike and then sound extremely nervous or panicky. So I think, you know, the, the hike sort of set him up to sound somewhat hawkish. But what we heard from him on Friday was this idea that they're flexible, Nothing is on autopilot. Um, You know, I think the the fact that he's listening to financial conditions actually tells me that, uh, you know, he's setting up somewhat for uh, a pause here. So, um, you know, whether it's a pause, whether um, it's it's the end of the hiking cycle, I think that only data will tell us. But at least we have the Fed now suggesting that uh, that they are watching uh, – the tightening in financial conditions much more closely than they were earlier, uh, uh, you know, the last few months.
1: So Priya, let's begin by talking about the potential for a pause and then we can explore this tension between the market and the economic data. I think for many people for now, many investors are going to run with the idea that Powell is going with the 2016 Fed playbook. Can we take a page out of the playbook in 2016?
3: I think we can. Uh, I mean, uh, the uh, the similarity with 2016 is is pretty um, high right now. Now it it, it is ultimately going to depend on whether we get the global growth rebound that we did see in 2016. We saw significant China easing. Now I'm not sure that the triple R cut is enough, but uh, but if we do get uh, uh, you know significant fiscal easing in China, if global growth rebounds, I think then 2016 uh, is a reasonable uh, 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 you know thing to uh, sort of watch for if growth uh, starts to decelerate, so we actually don't get that rebound, then I think we're, we'll, you know, I'll, I'll be looking more at 2007. So I think right now, just given that we don't know enough, the U.S. economy still seems to be uh, you know, powering through. I think we really have to look at what happens to global growth, what happens on the trade front to say whether this is 2016 or this is 2007.
1: Had some really extreme price action on the Thursday, never mind the Friday. In fact, maybe Friday told us more about the extreme positioning after Thursday than it did anything right. else, Priya. I just wonder your thoughts on the the tension right now between financial markets where things are a little bit darker relative to 12 months ago, maybe a whole lot darker in your view, compared to the data, where the data seems to be okay, especially here in the United States, softer, yes, in some parts, but the labor market still looking very strong.
3: Right. I think the tension uh, that you're talking about is also, uh, you know, in, in the data front, a lot of the forward-looking uh, measures are looking, uh, uh, you know, more worrisome. I think uh, the uh, payroll report is still somewhat of a backward-looking uh, data point. We still have fiscal easing in the system in the U.S. So I think what we're seeing is that the U.S. economy, at least backward-looking, seems to be pretty strong. We sort of knew that. I think the the, the fear is that uh, the China ISM, uh, the U.S. ISM, all of these forward-looking measures are suggesting some slowdown. Now, if we slow down from a 3.5% GDP to, uh, let's say, 2.5% GDP, that is a slowdown. But then 25 is still well above potential. So I think that can allow uh, the, uh, the market to sort of stabilize. I think if we are slowing down much more than that, and that's what we really don't know, that's where the tension is. I think all forward-looking measures are going to be extremely uh, scrutinized by the market because I think now the Fed policy mistake issue, that sh- uh, should go in the background i think now it's all going to be uh, does the us economy uh, slow down above potential or do we go below potential and how's the global growth backdrop here i think that's where, uh, uh, you know what's What's going to become extremely important as we analyze data, it's really going to be the forward-looking versus backward-looking difference that we need to analyze.
1: Uh, The soft data versus the hard data, once again, and the tension between that, not just the tension between the data and the market. Priya, I want some final thoughts on what your base case is right now for the U.S. economy and for U.S. rates. How difficult is it to construct a base case?
3: It is very difficult. Um, I, so, I, you know, what we're suggesting is uh, for investors to stay somewhat in the front end. You know, when the two-year note or, or three-month treasury bills are giving you 240 uh, or, or um, uh, you know basis points versus the 10-year that's giving you 260, you're not getting a whole lot more to take on that additional duration risk. So I'm actually still suggesting that investors stay in the front end and then start looking at parts of the fixed-income markets where risk premium has been adequately repriced. So some of the markets markets have seen significant uh, widening in spreads. Yeah, I think it might make sense to start dipping in your toes there, keeping an eye on the data. Because if, if the data does start to uh, deteriorate significantly, then you want to move out of risk assets. But yeah. I don't think we have that signal just yet.
1: Priya Misra, always great to catch up with you. TD Securities Head of Global Rate Strategy.
0: And bringing in Meredith Sumter of Eurasia Group, head of research strategy and operations. I was a bit surprised, Frank. It's the first time I've brought it up. President Trump, the huge distraction at Davos last year. And he goes for a redux this year, if he can get through the TSA at the airport, to fly there. I mean, President Trump, again, speaking to the international community.
4: Yes, well, Davos is certainly a critical stage for him and for his brand globally. I like that, his brand. His brand, for sure. And I think he also, his speech at last year's Davos played fairly well, uh, according to to the White House. Uh, So look for a repeat performance there, but also watch for President Trump. Uh, to have a sideline meeting with Chinese uh, Vice President Wang Qishan at Davos. Uh, That (coughs) is something that all of us will be watching for signs as to how the ongoing round of negotiations between the U.S. and China are faring. We
0: spent a lot of uh, time through the morning with really up top your Chinese risks as well. I want to address right now your lengthy essay on Europe populism, Mm. which is decidedly different than it was 12 months ago. What is the threat to democracy in Europe right now?
4: Well, 2019 is really the year when the populists will take center stage in Europe and begin to erode the EU from within. We've written for several months now about the rise of populism and populist leaders and Uh, you know Europe's third and fourth largest market economies in other countries uh, such as Hungary and Poland but what's critical now is that we expect that uh, populists their numbers are going to fare even better in 2019 and keep an eye on the May parliamentary elections we expect that their numbers are going to grow following those elections, which will put them at center stage in Europe's most important democratic institution.
0: In the dominant uh, countries as well. Eurasia Group was so out front on the fractures of Germany, one and two, and even three years ago. And, of course, Mr. Macron with the challenges. Now, how does that redound back to Brussels, where I was just uh, two weeks ago, I I guess? when, When I look at Brussels, what is the strength of this European Union within the media frenzy of Brexit?
4: Well, look, the, the Brussels—it's—it's it's dealing both with Brexit, but it's going to have to deal with the growing voice and the growing influence of the populace, not only in the European Parliament following May's elections, but Tom, if if the populists get enough of a strong showing in the May parliamentary elections, you combine that with their fairly solid bases of support in several key states, and you have a a risk of uh, you know euro populists having a voice not only in the parliament but also in the European Commission which oversees the day-to-day operations of <clears> Europe <throat> as as well as the European Council. This affords them is, real decision-making power. Is this
0: Within the, all of your top risks at Eurasia Group, is the system fractured, to steal a word from Francine Lacroix earlier uh, this morning, is the system fractured? Or are you optimistic with Dr. Bremer that we can see a healing, if not in 2019 then on through 20 after the presidential cycle and into the ensuing years.
4: So is the question more so with Europe or broadly speaking I think the broadly speaking,
0: I think our listeners are, you know, they're they're interested in Europe and they're interested in Wall Street and that. Right. But it's sort of a broad feeling of, okay, when does this heal?
4: Right. Look, it, it's going to take several more years of healing, <clears throat> but, but the length of time that it takes for us to actually heal depends upon the ability of leaders from largely industrialized economies tackling head-on the reforms that are necessary to bring more of their populations into the economy of the future, a lot of the geopolitical flux that we're seeing now. It, it, part of it, it's a long-term process of evolving from the post-World War II order mm-hmm. to what that new World War, uh, what that new world order. Do we will know be. that
0: this is critical? Do we know that new order that's out there? Zakaria, post-American order, Bremer, G Zero World, right. your own writings, Meredith Sumter as well, and others. What's the new consensus after the Washington consensus? I don't see it.
4: Well, part of that will depend upon what role Washington decides to play in this post World War II. Order. And to what extent Washington can get along with other key power brokers even if they
0: don't agree with them
4: Even if they don't agree with them. Yeah. This this fundamentally includes China Beijing So regardless of whatever tariff deal is agreed to our call mm-hmm. is that that? Relationships between the Ooh. two that these two world powers is going to get even tougher okay, in the Well, coming let's months. bring the
0: immediacy of a shutdown where the president's made clear it's his way or the highway Is that his relationship with China? Is that what we're going to see in the talks this week, the talks maybe at Davos, and the talks and the talks and the talks after that? Is it a Trump lateral world?
4: It would be a Trump-lateral world if we had an unending U.S. economic growth and strength. But that's not necessarily what we're seeing right now. Uh, Trump is fairly confident in the U.S. economy, but we're all watching the increased market volatility. Yeah. We're all watching signs of a potential slowdown in the U.S. economy. Yeah. And that could force his hand earlier than, than he would like. But the key question is, whether it's Trump or post-Trump, Yeah. to what extent is America going to lead? And what does that mean for the post world order
0: you more than any other guest we speak to is hardwired for distance from capital you did your academics at the university of washington you, you where, where were you was you and the grizzly bears up in anchorage right <laughs> something like that
4: yeah, i'm from alaska <clears throat> but it did my, my graduate work at LSE. i know
0: okay, yeah. <laughs> you went to london for your graduate work i get that but nobody i know spent more time distance from a capital right. than you right. what does washington right. not get about what's out there
4: the rest of the world is moving on, regardless of what and happens Sally in Washington. And Sally said that earlier this that's morning. That's right, that's right. And, and if, you, if you're in Washington circles and you listen to the kind of discussions happening there, to me it's not apparent that reality is not yet apparent to the key thought leaders and decision makers in Washington. And the faster they realize that, the faster that they're able to turn away from this high levels of partisanship and internal <clears throat> naval gazing and really focus on, no kidding, what does it really take for America and the American workforce to be competitive in a 21st century okay. global economy? And then
0: take it over to your wheelhouse of international relations. We're not getting along with our allies. Is that a one-off? Of this distrust with our, this limited trust, as you say, right. with our allies, or is there, can there be a recovery towards some trust with our? core allies.
4: It's gonna be a bit of an uphill battle <coughs> to get a recovery of, of the kind of trust that we saw pre-Trump. In other words, I think we're gonna to have to see a refashioning of the U.S. relate commitment to its alliance relationships, not only with traditional allies, but also with new emerging partners with with whom Washington will need to partner to be yeah. an effective and strategic power in the twenty first
0: yeah, century. Meredith Sumter, thank you so much with your Razor Group, Head of Research Strategy and Operations holding in the state of our capitalism and particularly the state of our technology, which means it's a wonderful time to speak to Sally Krawcheck. You know her from Wall Street. You know her from Elevate uh, Elevate and uh, Elevest, I should say, and all that she's done within digital, particularly with a uh, thrust towards how women should adapt to the markets and to capitalism. And she joins us uh, this morning. Sally Krawcheck, what have you and Elevest learned about how the digital platforms, the digital technologies will deal with volatility. You enjoyed February, then you enjoyed (laughs) October, and on to the end of the year. It's different than Smith Barney, isn't it?
5: Well, it is different than Smith Barney and different from Merrill Lynch. And everybody uh, told me, and the conventional wisdom is, if you have a digital-first investing platform, and we get into some tough markets, your clients will leave you. There won't be a person there to yeah. either sue them or grab them around the ankles and keep them from leaving. And, Tom, that's not at all what we saw, that, you know, we have built a, a product, a platform here at Ellevest that shows our clients are they on or off track for achieving their goals we built in plenty of down markets as we project They're achieving their goals, buying that home, starting that business, retiring at the age of 65, and can show them on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis, are they on track or off? And so what we found was our attrition rate actually went down during the periods of volatility because our clients were able to log in and say, I'm fine. Okay, back to living my life.
0: This is incredibly important, folks. And, of course, the age-old idea here is everybody's talking their book. The constant theme, Sally, has been low interest rates where the fees have been compressed. We saw uh, uh, Abby uh, Johnson up at Fidelity having to go to two funds, I believe, index funds that were completely free. Uh, Fees as well. Fold in the fee microeconomics that you see for the future of personal investment.
5: Well, the fees are coming down. Now, Tom, what's interesting is since you and I, were, since you were a little kid and I was a baby, um, everybody has said fee pressure, fee pressure, fee pressure, but it didn't really show up. In fact, you know, in the 15 years before I took responsibility for Merrill Lynch Wealth Management, the ROA revenue on assets had been flat for that 15 years. Now, there were certain products where there was fee pressure. But overall, that business continued to earn, and you've seen the research that says that the cost of financial intermediation is, you know, called one and a half or two percent all in. Well, with technology, we're able to um, bring that cost substantially down for really the first time, and the benefit of the cost coming down goes straight into the pockets of the consumers. So you're giving them highly customized investment portfolios put together through investing algorithms. But don't panic when the market goes down. You're able to, to, you know, feed them information on or off track, and you're able to do it at a much lower price than having a thick layer of person in there will lead to. What do I mean thick layer? The person who's doing all the, you know, not only the client relationship but also the investing, right, also the planning by using technology to do what technology does best and using people to do what people do best, the ultimate end client is better off Um, both emotionally and when it comes to dollars
0: and cents.
2: Sally Krawcheck, I'm wondering if you could just expand a little bit on the algorithm that Elvest uses because it's tailored specifically to women's incomes and also to their life cycles. And this is something that no one else has really been able to do.
5: Well, look, if you are planning to, um, you know, you're saving and investing for retirement and you put together a plan and you assume in your plan that you die on average um, and you assume in your plan that your earnings grow on average for an industry that works really well if you're a man because I hate to say it, gentlemen but you know you die earlier um, it also works really well because you earn more for a woman you know the chances of being left without you know an income at the end or without wealth at the end are much higher unless you take it into account and so LVS was really the first those are two things we do To, you know, really um, customize this to to either gender but to women, there are about a thousand other things that we do based off of hundreds and hundreds of hours of research that women said they were looking for. One is goals-based investing. And by the way, I know many of your listeners, what an investing platform for women. That is so dumb. I thought so, too, up until I realized that women weren't investing nearly as much as men were. It cost a typical woman hundreds of thousands, a million plus over the course of her life. And what the industry was doing, which was telling her to change, telling her she needed more financial education, telling her she needed to just buy a mutual fund. We could keep trying to do that, but it wasn't working before. So we saw no reason it would work going forward. And so we built an investing platform completely around her. And by the way, there are a lot of guys who love it, too.
1: I
2: would imagine. Can you tell us all about uh, something called the risk risk? quiz and why that's not enough and why it's about reaching the goal, not necessarily what happens in the market on a day-to-day or even month-to-month basis?
5: It's a great question. So most investment providers out there ask potential clients their risk tolerance. What we found when we did the research is many will answer that question. Uh, men on typically will answer that question. They don't know the answer to it, but they will answer it. Women typically will not answer the question and will leave and say, "I got to go figure this out. I got to go buy a book. I got to read about it, and I'll come back." And then they never come back. The truth is, no one really knows. The research shows you, and my my years in the business tell me, no one really knows what their risk tolerance is yeah. until they face up to a down market, and then they <clears> figure it out. And right. so, asking the question and then investing based on that, we as a fiduciary at Elevus, uh-uh, no what we do instead is tell us what you want to achieve and if you don't have an emergency fund i don't care if you think you're going to take on you, you want to take on a lot of risk you're not we're not letting you and by the way if you're 25 and your only goal is retirement we're going to build you a portfolio with quite a bit more risk there because you'll have the time to earn the returns and recover from yeah. downturns so we give a risk budget rather than hey what do you want and then you know act act in that way
0: Sally, the top risks of 2019 lead us to the top risks of a generation, whichever that generation may be. And to me, it comes down to actuarial assumption. We've had the gift of a bull market, which has made not all, but a select group look pretty smart. Do you just assume? And I go, and folks, this is with Sally's iconic work at Sanford Bernstein in, in math and securities analysis years ago. Do you just assume finally the single-digit world is upon us?
5: That's what that's what we project, and so that and if it isn't fantastic, but at LVS we project that, and if the returns end up being better, so be it. So not only do we project single-digit returns, but then we also project to try to get her to the quantitative goals she wants to achieve in the substantial majority of markets. So we try to build in a layer of conservatism to conservatism to conservatism, which can make the initial sell hard time because we're not out there saying you will be a millionaire. Uh, but we believe is a prudent way to um, help her plan for her future. Yeah. And look, for the, for the women, this is important. You, know, you, you hit on an important point. Women live longer than men do. Therefore, if we do not have enough money as a country for retirement savings, it is a gender issue. It is a gender issue. And so our goal at Elevest is to help close this gender investing gap, to help close the retirement savings gap. And if you think about it, if we could get oh. more money in the hands of women, close the gender pay gap, close the gender investing gap, that helps. the It's good for everybody. helps the economy grow. It puts money into the markets. It helps the women have more resources. It helps their their families. You know, it's not a zero-sum game by any means. And so for Elevest, we are an investing firm for women, but we're really mission-driven to try to, you know, at our core is to try to help women live well, more and better lives.
0: <clears throat> Sally, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Sally Krawcheck of Ellevest, uh helping out Ian Bremmer today with the top risk of 2019.